it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Tonight we have episode 218, and we're going to answer a couple of great listener questions we got recently. So I will go ahead and read our first question, and then Andrew and I will do our usual give and take. So I have, hi, Andrew. I am 40 years old and feel like I am extremely late to the investing game. Having grown up with parents that have always saved money and never invested, it took me a while to realize I have missed a big opportunity to invest my savings. Now I feel 15 years behind, but still I have 25 years to be in the market before retirement. I have been researching for about a year and I'm ready to enter the market probably with ETFs to begin with and some mining stocks. However, listening to your many expert investors over the last year, it seems the market is extremely overvalued and due for a correction in the coming year of anywhere between 20 to 80% down. So should I wait or just get investing? Thanks for the great podcast. I am learning with each one, Tim from Denmark. All right. So what are your thoughts on Tim's question from Denmark? I would be curious your thoughts on the idea of 25 years to retirement. My thoughts on 25 years to retirement are start now. (laughs) Uh, There's no better time to get into the market than it is today. The numbers show the sooner you start, the better chance you have to compound over a longer period of time. It also get you over the inertia of not investing. The longer the wait, the longer you wait, the more inertia is going to work against you and encourage you not to start investing. And you're always going to wait for air quote, the perfect time to get into the market. There is no perfect time to get into the market. Your best bet is to start investing as soon as you can and start doing it any way that you feel will work best for you. And if ETFs are the way that you want to dip your toe in the water, by all means, dip your toe in the water. The sooner you can get started, the the better off you're going to be in the long run. And 25 years is plenty of time to get where you want to go as long as you start and start now. If you wait another five years, if you wait for the correction, whenever that may happen, the market analysts have been saying that, well, I don't know, probably for the last... 10 years since we had our last bear market, they've been saying that we're going to have another one and we will. But 
when is that going to happen? Nobody knows. I think the idea of waiting is not to your benefit. And I think the sooner that you can get started and start investing now and doing it, following all the things that we've talked about, you've listened to our podcast for over a year now. So you understand that we advocate for trying to find companies with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety, finding good things that are stable, that will pay a dividend, that will be safe and secure. And those are going to be great investments during the ups and downs. And there's also this little thing called dollar cost averaging, which allows you to help smooth out any fluctuations that you will have when you buy stocks, whether it's an ETF or individual stocks. So there's lots of ways you can help mitigate some of the possible downturns. The other part of that is, let's say you buy in now and a year from now, the market does take the downturn that you're afraid of. That just means that the great companies that you're buying now are now on sale. And who doesn't want to buy things on sale? We all do. And so that's when you can make the most money getting into the market. So I guess that's kind of my initial thought. I'd like to hear what you have to say, Mr. Andrew. This idea that success in the market comes from buying low and selling high. The buy low, sell high idea is one of those maybe a little misunderstood. And you know, when you're running a race or a marathon, it's not about how did I look on mile one or mile two? Like nobody cares, right? Did you have a good pace along the entire way? And when it comes to investing, it's not about I invested and now I'm out because, okay, let's say you do sell early and you feel like you got a good profit. Well, now what? Investing is a lifelong thing. It's a journey. It's your path to financial freedom. It's not like a game that you're trying to win. Hey, we won the championship, you know? So that's where dollar cost averaging comes in, where you build this habit where you are investing a little bit every single month. And so when you spread that out, you don't have to worry about having this huge win or this huge period where you were the smartest person at the bottom and the smartest person at the top. That's kind of impossible to do. You have this habit and it's a part of you and you're growing your money over time. And so I think looking at investing, you never want to put all your eggs in one basket. You never want to put, you know, if we're talking about your entire life savings, you never want to put all of that in at once. It really will matter when you buy. But if you talk about building an investing habit, starting from scratch, trying to build something for your future, that's going to take continuous steps. And it's not just one step, hey, we arrived, we won the game. It's step after step after step down the path to financial freedom. As you take those steps, guess what? If the market goes down, sure, your steps from two months ago maybe are down in value, but now you have an opportunity to buy at an even better deal. And then on the flip side, you know they're always going to say that the market's expensive. That's just kind of... If they don't say that, they don't have anything to be on TV for, right? Right. So they need to say something controversial so that they will say that. And so, you know, you might buy and it might get more expensive and get more expensive. But again, you're building that habit and you're getting this compounding to work for you. And really, at the end of the day, it's not even about where your money is going in and, and when it's coming out, but you're really partnering with the businesses you're buying. So if you're buying an ETF, you're partnering with those groups of businesses represented by the stocks in that ETF or if you're buying individual companies. And so you have to look at what are those companies that are going to be my partners, what are they giving me over the long term? What they're going to do is they're going to work for you and help build your wealth and compound it and hopefully produce free cash flow that can be reinvested and, and create growth for everybody. And so that's kind of the mindset that needs to happen. 
that no, you're never going to get it perfect. And like so many other things, you just kind of have to get your hands dirty and just start and try and not worry too much about doing it all perfectly because nobody does it perfectly. No, they don't. And I want to throw a few numbers at you to just kind of illustrate exactly what Andrew was talking about. So arguably one of the greatest investors in the history of the stock market is Warren Buffett. And over a 50 plus year investing career, he has earned a compounded returns of 20% a year, but it hasn't been a steady 20% along the way. There have been some pretty serious ups and downs. So I'm going to read you just a, a five or six year snapshot here of some returns he got in the early 70s. So 1970, his returns were negative 4.6%. 1971, he earned 80.5%. In 72, he earned 8.1%. In 1973, negative 2.5%. In 1974, negative 48.7%. And then the next year, 2.5%. So I guess my point with that is that I'm looking at his annual shareholder letter. At the first page of his annual shareholder letter, he shows the returns of Berkshire Hathaway for that particular year, for every single year. And you can see at the, at the end of the tally, it's a 20% return over all those years. But if you look at each individual year, there are some pretty wild swings. And you got to remember, he's not buying Tesla. <laughs> you know, he was buying Coca-Cola, American Express. These were investments that were maybe not the most glamorous and sexy, but I guess my point is is that the returns that you can earn, you're going to have fluctuations. And just like Andrew was saying, those are steps that you can use to help you generate better returns because you can bet your butt when Buffett was having a down year, he was buying more things at a cheaper price. And then when the stock market turned, which it always does, then he earned an 80% return in a year or one year he earned 129% return. So it's just ridiculous numbers. You also are going to have years where you're going to lose 20, 30, 40% on your portfolio. We all saw that in March of 2022 or 2020. We all saw the market turn very quickly and very sharply. And it was kind of scary. I remember Andrew and I talking about it almost every day that, you know, everything's red, <laughs> but it wasn't, but neither one of us panicked. Neither one of us sold out of the things that we owned and we bought more things that were on discount and cheaper that helped boost our returns when the market returned. And so again, these are all part of the mindset and all kinds of the, the mental gymnastics that you have to kind of put yourself through to keep yourself sane when you think about this, because you are going to see ups and downs and it's part of investing in the market. And part of it is being calm and being rational and understanding that unfortunately, Mr. Market, who is the one who generates all this is not always going to be a sane, rational person. And you just have to kind of ignore that and stick to the basics and understand what it is you're buying and why you're buying it and what your end goal is. Because like Andrew said, Nobody cares how you did in year three of a 25-year track record. All you care about is where you finish at the finish line. That's all that matters. It doesn't matter what happens in between as long as you stay consistent and get to where you want to go. And that's, I think, the biggest thing you need to remember when you're thinking about this. So, Tim, I encourage you to dip your toes in, buy something tomorrow, right away. doesn't matter what it is. 
one thing, just buy one thing. It's scary and it's super, but once you step off that ledge and you buy the one thing, then it's going to start to make a lot more sense. It's going to become a lot more real and you're going to feel a lot more confident and a lot better about it. I know that's the way I felt. I think that's probably the way Andrew felt as well. But again, once you jump off that diving board and get in the water, the water's warm, baby, and it'll make you feel better. So I guess that's my two cents. That's great advice. Let's be honest here. Your sex life is important. It helps us feel more confident and boosts our happiness. But sometimes we struggle to perform. Our life gets in the way. This is where hymns can help. With their convenient and discreet online platform, you can get help for your erectile dysfunction from the comfort and privacy of your own home. No more waiting rooms, no more awkward conversations, just a simple, direct path to treatment that works around your life, not interrupts it. Invest in your health today. Hims is changing men's health care by providing access to affordable sexual health treatments from the comfort of your couch. Hims provides access to doctor-trusted ED treatment options such as chewable hard mints, brand-name treatments like Viagra, or generic alternatives for up to 95% cheaper. The process is simple and 100% online. No uncomfortable doctor visits. Answer a series of questions on their site, and a medical provider will determine the right treatment option. If prescribed, your medication ships to you free. No insurance is needed. If ED is getting you down, it's time you join the hundreds of thousands of trusted HIMSS subscribers and get treated. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash investing. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash investing for your personalized ED treatment options. HIMSS.com slash investing. Hard mints are chewable compounded products which are not approved by or verified for safety and effectiveness by the FDA. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See website for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money. Not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. All right. So let's move on to the next question. So we have, hi, guys. I'm Matt from Philly. I'm a great fan of the podcast and purchased the VTI this past year. 
I'm trying to diversify my portfolio with 80 to 90% dividend value stocks and the rest with Motley Fool Rule Breaker subscription recommendations. I recently read an article on closed-ended funds, CEFS. The two that the article pointed out are ticker NIE and ticker CLM. These funds have huge dividend yields. Anything over 6% should raise some flags. What are your thoughts on total NAV return? And it's greater than the funds pay out the dividends being sustainable. So, Andrew, what are your thoughts on Matt's first part of the question here? Total NAV return. So, NAV stands for net asset value. Closed-end funds, I'm assuming, are talking about either an ETF or a mutual fund. Again, basically just kind of like groups of stocks that you can buy. And so I guess the question about NAV, not sure if I understood it totally, but so what he was saying was paying the dividend out. And if they're paying out more than they're actually returning on their portfolio is at a red flag. And you can certainly think that it's hard to think how that would be sustainable if they're paying out more than they are returning over the long term. And so I guess the question you have to ask yourself is, why is this the case at this moment? Are they just kind of continuing a path of paying a dividend or growing dividend? And is it just a temporary problem where their returns are less than their funds being paid out? Or is it a longer term thing? I don't buy CEF. I don't look at tickers like this, like this NIE or the CLM. I look more at individual companies. And so you can kind of take a similar kind of logic with those where, yeah, you don't want to have a situation where there's too much dividends going out compared to what a company is bringing in. And so that's kind of how I would think of a situation like this as well. You really want to know what's going on here. And he mentioned, I guess, at the time that he wrote his email that the dividend yield was over 6%. I would agree it would probably raise some red flags. You do want to be careful. And, and I think it's a good thing to look at NAV because a lot of these funds... Their prices that are in the market can sometimes fluctuate compared to the NAV, depending on how optimistic or pessimistic people feel about a particular fund. So that's definitely a good place to look. And I would be very cautious if something, whenever you get like a kind of a red flag idea, it's always a good idea to, to be really cautious after you feel that way. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think something that's interesting to think about with any sort of fund is understanding what's underlying the fund and what the fund is investing in. Because basically what a fund will do, whether it's a closed-end fund or an ETF or an index, they look at a basket of stocks and they invest in those. And so that's kind of how they create their structure, if you will. And so just really quickly looking at the NIE portfolio, the top companies that are in this portfolio are Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Tesla, Amazon, NVIDIA, Meta, Home Depot, Adobe, and J.P. Morgan Chase. Those are all really strong companies, and most of them pay a dividend. Not maybe most, but over half. So I guess without knowing the ins and outs of that particular fund, it's interesting that the net asset value would be down for something like that. And I would hazard a guess that maybe the fees that this fund charges might be on the higher end. And so that may be eating into the returns that the fund is generating. 
And so that would also drive down the price, which would drive up the dividend yield. So as the price falls on the fund, the dividend that it pays, the yield would go up. My guess is happening is that the return for this fund is probably not doing as well. And so if it's paying the same dividend or more, then it's going to drive up the dividend yield, which would make it look more attractive for dividend investors. But again, it goes back to knowing what you own. And I'll, I'll give you an example of an individual stock a while ago, completely different story now, but GameStop at one point had a dividend yield of 13 or 14% because they were paying a pretty healthy dividend, but because the price had dropped so dramatically, the dividend yield had risen quite a bit. And so a lot of dividend investors were flocking to that company because it paid such a great dividend, but the underlying business and the fundamentals of the business were struggling. And this is way before the whole meme stock thing that it's become now. It's a completely different entity now. But I think when you're looking at any sort of index fund or ETF or closed-end fund, a mutual fund, the first thing you want to look at when you're investing in any of these are the fees that they're going to charge. And you want to find a fund that's going to charge you the least amount of fees that they can for the return because those fees are going to eat into your return over a longer period of time. And I'm not an expert on closed-end funds or mutual funds, but my understanding is they generally tend to charge a higher fee than something like an ETF would, for example. And so I think it goes back to a little bit to what buying what you know and seeing if those fees are eating into the returns for these closed-end funds. They may be great returns. They are also tend to be a little more actively managed. In other words, this one has a, yeah. So if you look at, there's this website called cefconnect.com. Okay. It says their management fees 1% per common share. And then there's other expenses. And then within this basic information on the fund itself, not only do they have a portfolio of equity securities, but they also have income producing portfolio convertible securities. Mm -hmm. So, they write call options. And that's very, very different than your average vanilla ETF that's just buying the stocks and holding them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you kind of get clued in by the name of the fund where they have convertible income in the title. You're really putting your trust in, in the management and their actual portfolio strategy more so than some of the other kind of factors that you might look at with a regular ETF. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. And I think anytime that you see an investment that has a higher dividend yield, sometimes you have to ask, is that normal? And then I guess the other question you'd probably want to ask too is, is it too good to be true? Is there a reason why it's this high? And out of the norm, then I guess that would probably want you to cause me to want to look under the hood a little bit more and see kind of what's going on and what's driving that. So, I mean, it sounded like mm-hmm. Matt was kind of clued in already. He said he kind of figured out, yeah, the actual assets inside there are only making such and such return, and then they're paying out more than the return. And that kind of now you put the pieces together, it's like, well, they were writing these options and then paying out a lot of that profit. And so, they're when you write options, you're not necessarily making as much return as if you would have just bought the stock on its own. So a company like Google or you know one of those big tech companies you mentioned that are in the portfolio, maybe they're not returning as much because they are writing these options, mm-hmm. taking the income instead of just buying the stock outright. So then it all makes sense. Okay, this is why the dividend yields so much incredibly higher than the average is because 
you have all these other things in play. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Yeah, that's those are great points. Yeah, good catch on the analysis there. All right, let's look at the second part of Matt's question. So I have also side question, but stocks like PSXP, MPLX, and Seneco have high dividend yields as well with relatively low PEs. What are your thoughts on these stocks' dividend sustainability? I don't understand how you can pay shareholders this much and expect the stocks to grow if dollars isn't being put back into the company. Mind you, these are energy or oil-based stocks, so growth may be limited as the economy changes, i.e. we may all be driving electric cars by 2050. Cheers. You guys are great. Matt. So, Andrew, what are your thoughts on the dividend sustainability idea? Yeah, another thing you want to look at with the dividend payout and kind of going back to this idea of maybe there being too much of a payout. So you do want to be careful. I guess it's probably the majority of situations. If if they're paying everything on the dividend, yes, there's no way they're going to grow. But you do have situations where a company can pay out most of the dividend and they will still grow. Like mm-hmm. Home Depot is a great example of this where they literally just keep the lights on. The prices go up because there's always demand. So they literally just man the stores, you know, barely man the stores at this point. Yeah. And the prices kind of go up on their own as the housing market goes up on its own. And so they pay, I think I looked on their cash flow statement the other day and they pay out like 80% of their free cash flow back as dividends and buybacks. Wow. So, but they're still able to grow and it's because same store sales and that's unique to their business model. Paychecks mm-hmm. is another one or like an ADP type payroll company where they really don't need to invest much and they just grow as their market grows organically. But a lot of other businesses, especially if it costs a lot of money for them to create revenues, they most certainly need reinvestments to grow. And if, yes, if they are paying all of those out in a dividend, it is very hard for them to grow. And so you probably will see stock price stagnation at that point. Yeah, you absolutely will. And and one of the things to keep in mind with the oil companies as well as the utilities are there are certain cases where it depends on the business model, but there are certain cases where I'm going to blank on whether it was Chevron or Exxon, but one of those two companies was actually taking on debt to continue paying their growing dividend because they had built up such a cachet of being a dividend growth company for so many years. They're a dividend aristocrat. So they continued to borrow even though they were losing money because the price of oil had dropped through the roof. And to continue paying the dividend, they had to take on debt to pay that dividend. And so that's how they continue to do that. And so there are going to be times where a commodity 
type company like a, a Chevron, Sunoco, any of those kinds of companies that deal in oil, which is a commodity, you're going to see wild fluctuations of price of oil, and that's going to affect the profitability of those companies. And so then they're going to have to make capital decisions on how they want to A, allocate any capital or B, what they want to continue doing. And any company that pays a dividend for them to stop it is kind of like going to the moon. They just don't want to do it. And so for a company like Exxon or Chevron to stop paying their dividend, that would never be a good thing. And they would lose investors and they would lose share price and it would be devastating to them. So that's why management would make decisions that they would basically planning that oil would bounce back and that the company would return to profitability at some point again in the future. The same kind I guess of idea. It kind of did. It kind, yeah, it kind of did. You know, it kind of worked out for him. But as an investor that's looking at the balance sheet of a company like that, and you see the company losing money, free cash flow negative, losing money from accounting earnings, and then you see the debt going up and up and up, and you still see the dividend going up and up and up, you start to look at that and go, you know, is this sustainable? You know, because at some point, those interest payments on the debt that they're paying become too big of a burden and the company has to declare bankruptcy. That's where you start to draw a fine line on how much debt can the company take on, how much can they afford, and how much is it really worth continuing down that path. Now, Chevron and Exxon in particular, BP, those big oil majors, they have other sources that to tap into to try to generate equity or to generate cash for the company outside of the operation. So it's a little bit of a different situation, but the same kind of idea applies. Now, if you look at utilities, you have other things going on with utilities. So utilities do pay out a huge amount of their free cash flow as buybacks and dividends. And part of why they do that is because that is part of the return that you expect when you invest in a utility. Utilities are, at least here in the United States, regulated by the government. In other words, they can't raise prices on us, the consumer, without approval from state and national governments. And so to do that, they have to go and they have to make capital allocation decisions years in advance. And then they have to go to the state of Illinois, for example, where I live and tell the state of Illinois, hey, we want to put in this, this, and this, and we want to refurbish this, this, and this, and it's going to cost us this much. And to do that, we need to raise the rates of electricity and natural gas on our customers so that we can afford to pay for these and to continue to keep our doors open. And so because those take time, it doesn't happen overnight. Some of these decisions that the utilities and the governments make together can take years to occur because of that, then paying a dividend that's three, three and a half percent is going to be part of the capital return that an investor would expect from a utility. The other side of that equation is that because they have such huge capital outlay for the equipment and for the refurbishment and the running of the utilities beyond just paying the people to run these, you know, the power stations and all the things that go into creating a grid in the state of Illinois, it ain't cheap. And so those are big bucks that they're spending. That causes most of these companies to be cash flow negative, but they're still generating enough returns that they can pay a dividend. Well, how do they do that? Well, if you're not bringing enough money and you have to wait to raise your prices, how do you do that? Well, there are several ways they do that. One is they raise a lot of debt and they also sell a lot of equity. And so they sell 
parts of they do these things to raise money so that they can pay the dividends and they can keep the lights on and do all the other things they have to do. It's a balancing act. But if you look at the financials of your local utility, wherever you live here in the United States, and you look at it, it's not going to be sexy. It's not going to be, you know, 50% margins like you're going to see with Adobe or Facebook. It's going to be like operating margins of like 4% and net income margin of 2%. And you look at that and you think, wow, that's, those are tight, but that's just the nature of the business model. And so you have to think about those things when you're trying to make a decision. But that is how some of these companies can afford to pay bigger dividends. Another example of this is REITs. REITs have, by law, they have to pay out 90% of their earnings as a dividend every year. And so that's how they can pay these really high dividend yields compared to a company like Microsoft, for example. So it's a good idea to look at the business model and kind of try to wrap your brain around how the company operates and how they do what they do and to understand how they pay the dividends. But it also goes back to what it sells, what it makes, the commodities of it and things like that. But you also have to look at sometimes if it's really high, there's a reason why. And if it's not normal and if it's not part of the normal industry, then you want to ask yourself why. Yeah, it's a lot to think about. (laughs) And it is a balancing act. I think takeaways, at least for me, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, Dave, but I haven't seen the utility business that I've liked. I mean, just that idea that they have to go to the government for approval, that's not a really great business model. And not generating cash flow is not a great business model either. REITs, which stands for Real Estate Investment Trusts, that's definitely a balancing act where you do get a high dividend, but they also create a lot of shares, so they dilute a lot. So it's a fine balancing act, and you have to know what you're looking at when you do that. And then you do have to be careful if a stock's dividend looks really, really high compared to everybody else's, and make sure you know why that's the case. Sometimes it can be because they're just really cheap, because as a stock gets cheaper, the dividend yield does go up. But a lot of times... All for all the red flags that we've discussed today, and Matt, a couple that you mentioned as well, that can be flashing indicators to why, all right, there's a high dividend yield here and it might not be sustainable. I think hopefully that sums up this question. Yeah, I think it does way better than my verbal you know, mind dump there. So sorry about the uh, overload on information, everybody. <laughs> All right. I guess with that, we will go ahead and wrap up our conversation for this evening. I wanted to thank Matt and Tim for sending us those great questions. Keep them coming, guys. We really enjoy doing this, and we hope you get some good takeaways and learnings from all this stuff. And so without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week. We'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.